Good morning. Good to see you. Shall we dive right in? Shall we read together one verse from Proverbs chapter 2? It's going to come up on the screens. Why don't you read this with me? We're going to read it a couple of times. For the Lord grants wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. Let's do that one more time, shall we? From the Lord grants wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. I wonder if we have any fans of the Minions or Despicable Me movies here. Anyone just wave at me? Yes? Who's seen the latest film, The Rise of Gru? Wonderful film. Any big fans of The Office, the US version here? Anyone? Yeah? It's so funny. Love it. Uh, anyone who's a fan of the Bruce Almighty or Evan Almighty films, wave at me. Yeah? Well, the funny guy in all these films is Steve Carell, right? He's one of the best comedy actors out there, and he really is the one who kind of makes these films funny, in my opinion. Now, some of you who are a bit younger, you may not know this, but the film that shot Steve Carell to fame was a film called The 40-Year-Old Virgin. Anyone remember that film? The 40-Year-Old Virgin. Now, uh, you do not need me to tell you, if you've never watched this film, that this film is a comedy film. It's a film, unsurprisingly, about a 40-year-old virgin. Okay? And the reason it's a comedy film is because there is a, an assumption in Western society that is so kind of pervading all of, uh, kind of the air we breathe, really, that says you are somehow not fulfilled in life, you are somehow not a whole person unless you are sexually active. And the film kind of pokes fun at this guy who's reached the age of 40 and who's never had sex. This is such a big assumption in, uh, in our culture. In fact, sometimes we, we don't even kind of take it all in because actually it's just everywhere. In the, the things we watch uh, on Netflix, which so often have uh, really graphic uh, sex scenes uh, or films that we might watch or songs that are just playing on the radio every day with really explicit lyrics uh, from uh, dating apps that encourage a kind of hookup culture this is everywhere. This is kind of something of the, uh, the air we breathe and the waters in which we swim, that you need to be sexually active to kind of be a whole person. That is pervading our society. Now, for some of us here, that has been the case ever since we've been alive. That's kind of been a big assumption in our society ever since we've been alive. Now, for some of you here, that's not always been the case. There has been a massive change over the last 60 to 70 years in the assumptions of our culture. And it all comes down to something called the sexual revolution. Our culture has been turned upside down. And old sexual codes, things that we uh, maybe once took for granted in this country, have been thrown out of the window. And those old sexual codes have now kind of been looked upon. And people who hold to those sexual codes are seen as uh, bigoted or somehow old-fashioned or stupid or all of those things. It's a huge deal. It's, uh, today, it's important that we get a hold of this and understand the changes that have taken place as we start a new series called A Better Story, God, Sex, and Human Flourishing. That's the series that we're going to be in over the next couple of months. And it's important that we get a hold and, and a grasp of the big changes that have happened in our country and in the Western uh, society over these last 60 or 70 years. So I want to do a little bit of a sociology lecture with you just for about 15 minutes. Are you up for that? And then we're going to just see what God might have to say uh, into all of these things. So I'm going to unpack for us in very broad brushstrokes uh, the sexual revolution and the changes that have happened over these past seven decades. 
and then I want to examine some of the outcomes of it. And you may be surprised at some of the conclusions I draw. And as I describe things, I just, I just want you to hold back for a minute for, from sort of casting judgment on what you think I may be saying, okay? I'm going to be describing things, and sometimes as we describe things, you can get shot down before you've even said what you wanted to say, okay? So I'm just going to describe some things. You just have to hold, hold, your, hold your thoughts for a moment. And when I've described the major developments of the last 60, 70 years, this sexual revolution, I want to examine the fruit of it, and I want to... I want to examine what is underneath it and ask, do we believe that? And is there a better story? So here we go. The great revolution, question mark. It's going to be hard to, to summarize this in just a few minutes um, because really the roots of the sexual revolution that we've seen in the last 60, 70 years in Western culture uh, kind of go back hundreds of years to uh, philosophers and poets and thinkers from like 300 years ago. Okay, so any philosophy or history nuts out there, you're just going to have to bear with me. I'm going to do my very best in a very limited amount of time to unpack this for us. But just for one moment, casting aside uh, some of the kind of philosophical roots, some of the big thinking behind it all, here's just a few basics of the sexual revolution. So it began in the 1960s in Western culture, and it continues to this day. It's not really finished. It's continuing to do what revolutions do, and I suspect there's some time before really this revolution burns itself out. And this revolution initially was about the uh, relaxation of the idea that sex was for enjoyment and making children within the lifelong commitment of a marriage between a man and a woman. It's the re relaxation of that idea. And it's about the severing of the link between sex and marriage that for centuries had held the kind of mainstream of Western opinion. Prior to this, children were by and large born into marriages, and uh, marriages by and large stayed together and stayed the course. Fast forward to 2022, and it is now more common in this country to be born out of marriage than it is to be born within a marriage. And the divorce rate is now at 42% which in some ways, encouragingly, is down from last year, which was at 46%. But that's probably to do with the fact that less people are getting married now. So it's huge changes that have taken place. And of course now marriage is now legal between two men or two women or between those that maybe no longer identify with the sex that they were born with. These are enormous changes, right? This is a huge deal. And some of you have lived through all of that time, and you may be kind of in a bit of a whirlwind thinking, I don't know what happened in these last 60, 70 years. So what are the factors that accelerated these changes? There's a few factors. The firstly, uh, first factor is that in the, in the aftermath of the Second World War, in this nation and in other nations, there was a welfare state created, which meant that for the first time it was possible, plausible to raise a child uh, without the need for a traditional breadwinner, which was often uh, a male in the home. So it was possible to clothe and feed and provide uh, medical care for a child without the need for a male breadwinner to be around. And then we had deindustrialization as well. I told you this is going to be a good sociology lecture. We had deindustrialization, which meant that our economy, the way people made money, the jobs that they had, kind of moved away from factories and manual labor, which was mostly occupied by men, 
to more service-based industry, which meant women could move into the workforce more easily and, again, would not necessarily need men in the same way anymore. And then we saw the rise of mass media, so movies that could go around the world and uh, share ideas around the world, and songs and the lyrics within them that could go around the world very easily. This kind of took off in the uh, late 50s and into the 60s and to the 70s, and so ideas could spread around the world very easily. And finally, scientific advances meant that for the first time, reliable contraceptive became available, meaning that sex was uncoupled from childbearing and all the responsibilities that came with it. So there's a number of factors at play that kind of help to accelerate the sexual revolution. Are you understanding where we're going so far? You've got this. And even as technology has advanced further, uh, medication has proved effective in combating sexually transmitted disease, which means that it's more uh, possible to avoid serious illness or to uh, treat serious illness that comes with promiscuity. So people now can have sex with lots of different people and not just one person. People can now undergo therapy to block puberty in order to pursue what they feel is right for them. And so there is, to a degree, choice for all. And this is the key word that we need just to kind of pause on right now, is this word choice. There is this choice that is underlying it, as well as all of the changes in the welfare system and in technology and in the economy, the workplace and the medical science, there were ideas with their roots going back centuries that really were starting to rise to the fore in our culture. And the most important of all of these ideas, the idea at the root of the sexual revolution, is the idea of expressive individualism. Expressive individualism. This is the big deal that's underneath it all. Expressive individualism is, is all about the importance that we give to individual thought as opposed to the importance and the weight that we give to traditional authorities and institutions. Do you understand? So it's all about kind of what do I think about this rather than what do other people think about this. So in other words, expressive individualism is about thinking for yourself rather than being told what to think. It's about freedom from the authority of others. And some of the key phrases that maybe um, characterize or summarize expressive individualism are phrases that we hear very often. You be you. Express yourself. Follow your heart. Be true to yourself. Find yourself. These are kind of some of the, the phrases that really uh, summarize this idea. And in the thinking of expressive individualism, the purpose of life is to find one's deepest sense of self and then express that to the world. It's to look within, who am I really, and then to express that to the world. Forging that identity in ways that maybe counter what parents or uh, family members or previous generations or religious authorities may have to say about it. So expressive individualism is, is right at the heart of the sexual revolution. To paint the picture of how this thinking has kind of taken root in our media and over these last 70 years brought about such change, uh, if you were to ask someone 70 years ago, does your job satisfy you? They might look at you blankly and not even understand the purpose of the question. They might not even understand what you're asking. 
Because if you were to ask someone 70 or 8 years ago, does your job satisfy you? That's not the way they're thinking. They're thinking, does my job give me the money that I need to put food on the table to feed my family? Not, am I fulfilled in a deep sense by the work that I do? That's why in the 1960s and in the 70s and through to today, this theme was and is so popular in stories and in movies. In the 60s, Elvis Presley and Frank Sinatra, two giants of the music industry, both covered the song, I Did It My Way which has these lyrics in it. For what is a man? What has he got? If not himself, then he has naught. Not to say the things that he truly feels and not the words of someone who kneels. Let the record show I took all the blows. I did it my way. Not someone who kneels. No one tells me what to do. I go my way. That's the message of that song that became so popular. And in that similar era, Bob Dylan sang a song, The Times They Are A-Changing. And he, he warns parents in that song, hey, your children are not going to obey your command anymore. They're beyond your command. They're not going to listen to you anymore. And in the 80s, it was Madonna who said, I am my own experiment, my own work of art. Fast forward to the 90s and... The, the most famous film of that uh, decade, The Titanic, is all about Kate Winslet, the character that she plays, Rose, uh, kind of moving away from what her family want her to do, i.e. marry into wealth and, uh, and, and kind of stay within the society that she's, she's grown up in, to leave that behind and to go after the ragamuffin uh, that is Jack, that is played by Leonardo DiCaprio. She's saying, I don't want to hear your opinion, I want to go after what I want within. Okay, This is Expressive individualism kind of popularized. Come forward to the 2010s, and it was Elsa singing Let It Go. And uh, if you've got young children, you've probably heard this song hundreds and hundreds of times in your life. You've probably heard it more than most worship songs that you've ever heard. This is an anthem of our generation. And author and pastor Timothy Keller says of this cultural phenomenon, the new narrative this new story that has been kind of grabbed by our generation and our culture, it goes beyond merely understanding and directing our own passions to enthroning them. So not just understanding or directing our passions, but we enthrone them now. And he says, its essence is captured by the words of the song, Let It Go, in the Disney movie Frozen. The song is sung by a character determined no longer to be the good girl, that her family and society had wanted her to be. Instead, she would let go and express what she had been holding back inside. There is no right or wrong, no rules for her. And now in 2022, one of the biggest selling albums of this year is by Adele, and it's all about her recent divorce, a divorce that she initiated. And in past generations, a person leaving their marriage in the pursuit of their own happiness because they didn't feel that they could be themselves in a marriage would, would widely be considered selfish. But quite the opposite, opposite has happened in 2022. Those reasons are now generally considered valid and she has been celebrated for her courage. Big, big changes 
Expressive individualism is everywhere. It's hard to escape. And sometimes we don't see it because it's everywhere. But maybe you will today as you go from this place. Maybe you'll see it everywhere. I was listening uh, to the new Ed Sheeran album with my kids in the car on a car journey a few weeks back. And it's a, it's a lovely album. There's some really nice songs on it. And there's a song at the end where Ed Sheeran sings a song to uh, his little toddler. And the song is it's a lovely lullaby. But in the song, he says, Fall into the world of your song. Whatever you feel can never be wrong. And uh, we had a pause the music moment at that point. <laughs> Parents, I think you should do this. I really do. You know, we want to teach and train our children well. And so we had a pause the mo- a music moment, and I said, hey, kids, what do you think to that? What do you think to those words? Fall into the world of your own song. Whatever you feel can never be wrong. And <laughs> one of my daughters said, that's a bit stupid, isn't it? <laughs> because, of course, we feel things that are wrong sometimes. But the kind of underlying narrative of expressive individualism is that you have to be yourself. And it's impossible to challenge what you feel deep down inside. And some parents feel really kind of frozen by this, not to use a frozen pun, but they feel frozen by this. They don't know how to challenge children on this. And in some very extreme cases, have not wanted to even tell a child what sex they are because they want them to work it out for themselves. This is massive change that has come about in 60 or 70 years. To tell children what sex they are is somehow oppressive. Surely they've got to work it out for themselves to look within, discover it, and then express it. So I've, I've barely touched the sides of explaining the sexual revolution and the, the expressive individualism that is underneath it. But that's going to have to be all for now. It has changed our society in many, many ways. And before we, we examine this a little more and, and examine the outcome of these things, I want to just make a few points, some of which may surprise you. The first is this. Look, the 1950s and all that came before the 1950s was not the golden era. Can we just say that for a moment? Because sometimes in our weariness of the changes that we see around us and the confusion that we see around us, we might kind of get a bit nostalgic sometimes and think, if only I lived in the 1950s. Where, where you didn't have to second-guess whether you were you know, right to call someone madam or sir. You, there was no kind of second-guessing on that front. There was no complication. People knew how to speak to each other with respect and chivalry, and men could be chivalrous and hold a door open and not be slapped for it, and, and, and women were expected to behave a certain way. That was not the golden era. There never has been a golden era. Okay, There will be a golden era that we're looking forward to in eternity, but that wasn't the golden era. We had just come back from two destructive world wars that left millions and millions of people dead. And in that era, major powers in the world were arming themselves with nuclear weapons that could destroy all of life on Earth. And that's just the world picture. We forget that this was an age where, in some places, women would have children forcibly removed from their care because their child was born out of wedlock and placed into into care kind of against their will. That was happening in quite a number of places in this country, in places like Ireland as well. We forget that there was all kinds of injustices going on where gay men were thrown into prison. We forget that actually this was not a golden era. 
there were some things that were better and some things that were worse. It's, sometimes we think that kind of history is on this kind of like trajectory, either going, you know, one way getting worse and worse and worse or getting better and better and better. There were some things that were worse, some things that were better. That's just the way life is. But we can sometimes think we've got to go back to a, tradi- to a traditional society. That's the answer. That's what's kind of underneath the whole make America great again stuff that we see across the pond. We've got to go back to some era of traditionalist kind of values. Well, the Bible doesn't hold that up as the answer to human flourishing. And there are some positive things that came from the rise of individualism. Okay, you're probably very surprised to hear me say that. But you you have to understand that actually at the very basis of individualism, or at the very root, is the, the belief that every single person is made in the image of God. Okay, so at the basis of all all of the human rights movements that we see around the world, civil rights movements, is this understanding that all humans are made in the image of God and have equal worth, equal value, should have equal dignity. And so there have been some good things in the last few decades where the poor and oppressed, their rights have been kind of uplifted. And so it's not all bad. There have been some good changes in these last 60 or 70 years. Certainly women have in some ways benefited in this revolution. In other ways, as we'll see, they have not. In many other ways, they've not. But for the first time, women were able to come out of abusive relationships where men might freely beat women and women just had to kind of put up with it and and just had no way out. So there has been some... uh, positives in these last 60 or 70 years. We also need to acknowledge that the Christian church has not done well in so many ways. So from preachers who maybe preach passionately about God's plan for sex and marriage one minute and then who have an affair the next minute, that that has done damage. Or where churches have overlooked sexual abuse and never reported it to the police to try and save their skin. Or where as I've already said, where religious groups have forcibly made women give up their children because their children weren't born within a marriage context. There's been some damage done by the church. There's been some damage done by professing Christians. Sometimes it's where Christians have who, they've acted with conviction but not with compassion. They've got convictions. We're called to have convictions where we, 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 we have a grasp of what, what God says. But we're also called to have compassion. And sometimes Christians, maybe maybe more in recent years, have acted with compassion but no conviction. Where we've kind of thought, well, I don't want to say that there's another way. I don't want to, I I dare not say that God has plans for uh, these certain things. Well, he does. But we've kind of, in our compassion, have tried to say, well, it doesn't really matter. No, no. God is calling us to have conviction and compassion. The church hasn't done well in these things sometimes. And maybe for centuries, the church has kind of not spoken about sex, even though the Bible does a lot. There's a whole book in the Bible called Song of Songs, which is at very least about the the tenderness and delight of sex in marriage. It's about way more than that as well. (laughs) It's about God's passion for the church, for his people. But it is a book that shows us 
the beauty and delight of sex within marriage. And the church has kind of maybe for centuries actually not spoken about these things because there's been a shame attached to it. It's a disgusting thing. So you should save it for the person you love. <laughs> it's kind of been it's kind of been the kind of been the teaching without it being said like that. But actually the Bible speaks very positively about sex and very positively about sex within marriage. But it's kind of been pushed to the side and not talked about. So the church hasn't always done things well in this. And there are many losers from the sexual revolution. I want to just pick up on this right now. It's a bit grim, but I want to to share this. As so often in history, when there are revolutions, where there are big social changes, the losers are often women and children. And this revolution is no different. So let's just look at this for just a moment. Children, as a result of this revolution and the expressive individualism that has driven it, Many children have grown up without knowing their dad. And statistics would say, in a room of, I don't know how many there are here, 400 people, statistics would say that there are a number of people in this room who have never known their dad. And it is true that having a dad around should be a good thing. It should be a very, very positive thing. And for kids whose dad has left almost 30% of them have never had contact with their dad and another 20% see their ki- so another 20% of children who grow up without their dad in the home see their dad just a few times a year generally and there are exceptions of course children who grow up with both biological parents are known to have better mental health outcomes educational outcomes and financial outcomes that's the truth There are exceptions. Maybe there's some exceptions here. But that's the truth. And aside from what they're missing out on in terms of provision and life choices, there are millions of kids losing a role model and someone who should protect them physically and who should protect them from all kinds of things. And that's a very, very sad thing. That many, many millions of children have grown up without a dad in the home. And then we see the widespread use of pornography amongst even young children, with some children as young as 10 having been exposed to stuff that is downright awful. This is deeply troubling. It's heartbreaking. They're not just viewing images, but they're being educated by them. They're being shown stuff that is not right, is not normal. It's it's extreme in so many ways. And the sexual revolution is not responsible for porn. Porn has been around for centuries. But it's responsible for the rise and rise and rise of porn. It's responsible for the, the widespread usage and the damage that's come with it. And, it, and it, listen, the sexual revolution offers no answers in resisting the rise of porn. It doesn't. And children are not only being exposed to stuff that is, is downright sick and unhealthy, but being educated by it and becoming very confused about what sex is all about and what it's for. And then there's all, conf- there's all this confusion around gender identity as well. I know for a fact that in this room there are people whose children are in classrooms where a, a six- or seven-year-old child has said, I want to identify as a different sex to the one I was assigned at birth, and they're being held up and celebrated for it. And so for six- and seven-year-old children who are very impressionable, looking on, 
they see, I, I could get praise if I do that. I could get praise if I, if I start to say, I'm different. And this is what's going on. Very young children are being encouraged to look inside themselves to consider who they really are. It's a kind of modern-day Gnosticism. Gnosticism was one of the early uh, kind of false teachings that the early church had to face. It was all about secret knowledge. <laughs> People ask you, hey, what, 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 what is it that you know? I can't tell you, it's a secret. And, and this kind of modern-day Gnosticism is all about, I'm going to look inside and only I know who I really am inside. Only I know, and I'm going to find that secret that's within me, and I'm going to enthrone it, and I'm going to express it. That's a lot of pressure, right, for children? That's a huge amount of pressure for children. It's a huge amount of pressure for adults. We're being encouraged to choose to be what we desire, to create, to create ourselves from the dust of our own imagination and our own feelings, to create our own identities. It's a huge pressure to, to justify ourselves and to justify our existence, isn't it? I've got to, to know who I am deep down. I've got, to, I've got to express it. It sounds like freedom, but it's, it's a crushing, merciless pressure. You've got to create yourself. It's, it's pitched as freedom, but it's actually oppressive. It's enslaving. Is there any wonder that so many children are struggling with anxiety? Is there any wonder there's just a fragility around children now because there's a sense in which I've got to be something extraordinary. I've got to throw off the, the shackles of what my parents might say or tradition might say, and I've got to express myself. But listen, we, we can't build our identity on feelings because feelings change, don't they? What we feel one day may be very different to the way we feel having had a snack. Or what we feel in one period of our life, where there's all kinds of confusing things going on and hormones going on, may be very, very different to the way we feel in another time of our life years later. And yet we're being encouraged to build our identity on some things that are very, very changing, that are very unsteady, very unstable. It's too fragile. And we've not considered here unborn children. Last week... The grim, heartbreaking milestone was reached of 10 million children who were aborted in the UK since 1967. 10 million children. Children lose out in the sexual revolution. And women lose out in the sexual revolution. For all the talk of sexual freedom and my body, my choice, women overwhelmingly lose out. There's huge pressure to look like the airbrushed models on Instagram or on the covers of magazines, the use of filters to adjust skin tone, to adjust breast size, skinniness, lip size, all sorts of things, is skyrocketing. It's huge. This has led to self-harm, it's led to eating disorders, it's led to so much damage. And there's the emotional distress from being used by men for their sexual gratification and being left the next day. Hollywood has glamorized bed hopping. I mean, just think about James Bond, a cultural icon for a moment. He might, in some of the older films, have bedded two or three women in a film. And it just, it's just, to us, it seems like, hey, it's, 
It's sexual recreation. It's, it's a physical recreation for him. But there's no thought or any emphasis placed on the fact that this is a huge emotional deal. Because here's the, here's the contradictory thing. We know deep down that sex is more than a physical thing. We know that. If someone got in a fight in a pub and punched someone in the face, that's serious and it's violent. But we know that sexual violence is way more serious. We know that to be the case. We know that, that that's the, the biggest violation that one could ever experience. Because we know that sex is very special. We know that it's more than a physical thing. And yet Hollywood kind of glamorizes and the soaps we may see on TV or other things, the Netflix series we might watch, kind of glamorizes bed hopping and doesn't speak at all about the emotional damage that is done more often than not to women, but to men as well. It does not speak of these things. And despite all of this, despite the fact we know this, the messaging is still there, like in the films like The 40-Year-Old Virgin, that says you should be having sex. If you're married or not, it doesn't matter. It's just fun. There's no deeper meaning. And yet casual sex leads to, to distress, it leads to heartache. And this isn't to mention the increasing violence towards women, that is happening as men get sucked into dark stuff on the internet and start to see that, that uh, start to believe that that's normal, start to believe that that's the way I should act in bed. And women are more and more being recipients of abuse. And the Me Too movement in recent years has shown us that it's not getting better for women in many, many places. There's exploitation going on. So I've painted a bit of a bleak picture here. It's pretty bleak when you take a deep look at things. We can't be naive to that. We can't kind of bury our heads in the sand. It is a bleak picture. But we can, in the bleakness, we can lose sight of the good news. We can lose sight of the better story. The better story that God designed us, that he knows what's best for us, that he created sex as a good thing, and he knows how best sex is to be enjoyed, we can lose sight of his good plan, his better story that we're going to unpack in the weeks to come. And one thing that we're going to communicate again and again is that God is the creator. He's the designer. This hasn't all come about by accident. And sometimes that message can undermine it all, right? This, this message of, it's all an accident, we've just evolved. Well, it just undermines everything. No, we do believe God is the designer, and he knows what is best. He's got a very clear idea about this, and that he's not a killjoy. He's not out to make people miserable, but that he loves us, and that he wants us to experience life to the full. And I think you would expect, that as we unpack this in the weeks to come, that God will show us again and again that life to the full is not to be found in looking inside ourselves it's not to be found in trying to have as many sexual experiences as we can. It's to be found only in him. That's not surprising if we believe he's the creator. It's not surprising if we believe he's the source of all life and all joy. That only in him can it really be found. But as we, as we look at the changes of the last 60 to 70 years, as we consider the future and all the changes that are to come, because listen... More changes will come. 
Okay, the, the, as I said at the beginning, the sexual revolution has not finished doing what revolutions do. There are more changes still to come. There are. Those that pressed for the redefinition of marriage just eight years ago, many of those people are expressing complete bewilderment at the fact that there are now 13 letters in the LGBTQ plus acronyms. There's more changes to come. So as we look to the future and all the changes that are to come, my question is, will we trust God? Will we trust God and will we trust his word? More changes coming. Will we trust God? This is a, a principle we need to make a heart decision on. This is something we need to decide. I want to say even today, as we have a moment to respond, will we trust God? And I want us to consider making that heart decision now. But we make that decision based on five foundations. Number one, God has spoken and we don't need to figure it out for ourselves. He's not left us adrift in the world with no clue as to his nature, his wisdom, his heart. Number one, God has spoken. We don't need to try and figure it all out. That's really relieving, isn't it? <laughs> There's someone who knows what they're doing. Number two, his word revealed in nature and more fully in the Bible welcome us into his reality. So he's shown us in nature itself and he's shown us more fully in the Bible, in his word. This is our go-to. This book is our go-to. Sometimes we can go to the very, very compelling stories of our culture, and they are very compelling. It's very, Elsa's song is very compelling, isn't it? With her lovely dress and the ice firing everywhere. Very compelling. But this is our go-to, friends. We hold it up and we say, this is what we base ourselves on. This is what we look to. We look to mine it for its truths and build our life on his word. Thirdly, we flourish. This is what we genuinely believe. We flourish when we go with the grain of his reality. God has in mind our flourishing. He wants what is good for us. And when we go with the grain of his reality, his design in all kinds of areas not just in our sexuality, not just in the way we uh, treat our bodies. When we go with his reality, we flourish. Fourthly, for the Christian, identity is not discovered within or self-constructed, is not earned. It is revealed by God and lived out in his reality. This is such good news. I want you to take this home with you today. If you've come today and you don't know Jesus and you're just kind of, maybe someone's brought you along to church, I want you to know this. You don't, in Jesus, you don't need to try and look within to work out who you are. You don't need to try and earn your way into something. But you can actually receive an identity that is so much more glorious than any other identity we might try and self-construct, that is so much more secure than anything else we might try and build upon. By faith in Jesus, we get to be called sons and daughters of God. And that becomes the truest thing about us. That becomes the steady foundation on which we build our lives. This is a life-changing, life-shaping reality. And the fifth principle, 
that will help us make this decision is that whatever happens, God is good. There is much change ahead of us. There may come a time when even speaking of such foundations as I just have may land me in trouble with the authorities. There may be a time coming like that. Whatever may pass, God is good and he's been so good to us. Even though we don't deserve it, we deserve the opposite. I deserve the opposite of God's goodness. And so do you. And he's good all the way through. There's no shadow of evil in him. And his intentions are good. His ways are good. And his heart is good. He is good. Whatever happens, he's good. So as we enter this series and as we, as we get ready to sing in response, I wonder if the, the worship team could be ready. I want to ask us this. Will we take him at his word wherever it may lead us? That's a hard decision to make now. Will we, will we take him at his word, wherever it may lead us? Or are we going to believe the story of the world of expressive individualism that says, forget what anyone else might say, you do you? Who will we trust? Listen, we will meet lovely people who disagree with us. Sometimes we'll meet people who are lovelier than the people in your life group <laughs> who disagree with you. But are we going to still trust God's word? Are we, are we still going to hold to... Are we going to be those who have conviction and compassion? May we be those people. May we be those who say, it is not my business to judge those outside of the church. But within the church, I want to call people to live in God's ways. Will we trust God who entered into the furthest reaches of human suffering and depravity and died in our place. Will we trust in him? The one, who, the one who died in our place, receiving the, the, the punishment that, of our sin, where we've, where we've just wanted to kind of go our own way, where he paid the price for all of the, the me-centered living. That's what sin is. It's me-centered living. Listen, we won't get all of our questions answered. There'll be some things that even as we go through the series, we'll think, I'm not, I still don't understand. There'll be confusing things for us sometimes, but this is the basis of our trust, that our God has entered in, that Jesus Christ, fully, he's fully able to sympathize with us. He's, he understands what life is all about. And he lived for 30-something years on this earth and never had sex. And he is the most human of all the human beings that ever walked on this earth. He's fully God, but there's no one who's been more fully human than Jesus Christ. Completely untainted by sin. And he was willing to go to such great lengths for us. So standing at the foot of the cross, we know that God is good. And he's totally committed to doing us good. And so I want us to just, with that in our minds, I want us to stand. Can we stand together? We're going to sing. We're going to declare our trust in God. And it may be that you don't even, you, maybe right now you think, I, I don't think I can even sing because I just, I just need to just think this through for a moment. 
But many of us will feel, I can just say right now, I trust in you, Lord. I trust in your ways. And we're going we're gonna to do this. But there may be some just around the room just need to do business with God and say, help me. I believe, but help me in my unbelief. And then John and Hannah will come and lead us in communion in just a few minutes' time. But we recall this Jesus on the cross for us. Bearing our sin. Showing us we can trust him. Let's just pray. Lord, we just at the outset of this series, Lord, we, I think for many of us, we just want to say, Lord, we believe, but help us in our unbelief. Help us where we struggle. Help us, Lord, to trust you. Help us, Lord, to build our life on the rock of your wisdom, your word. Help us in this, Lord, and let us be those that are men and women of conviction and compassion. Help us in this, Lord, we pray. Help us to proclaim that there is a better story. There is a better story. It is better to know your identity totally as a son or daughter of God than anything else that might be preached to us so often. It is better. God's ways are better. And to know him is life in all its fullness. Help us in this, we pray. Help us to display this story wherever we go in the days to come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.